1: So, we live a very strange life. Yeah. Insofar so far as we've gotten to talk to some pretty awesome freaking people on this podcast.
0: Amazing people.
1: Yeah. And, like, some of them, we talked to you once, and then we're like, hey, do you want to talk to us again? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And we're like, why? Why on earth? <laughs> Would you say yes, we weren't expecting you to say yes, but you did, and now we don't know what to do um, yeah, and this is one of those times this is one of those times he's back the the father of of apple grant the the grant of the apple grant anyway, Michael Grant he's talking to us again he's here he's here and and we were like hey, Frontlines, though. And he was like, yeah, Frontlines. He, he said multiple
0: times, oh, so you're one of the 12 people that's read it. <laughs> and I've never been more livid in my life because, like, this is an amazing
1: series. Why aren't we so reading? mad. Hey. We're so mad. Go read Frontlines, all of you, right now.
0: Every single one of you.
1: Freaking Go. Stop what you're yeah, doing and go. Turn this podcast around.
0: Yeah. No, wait. That's my job. I will turn this podcast around.
1: Yeah, and talk to Michael Grant with us about Frontlines because, like, we're gonna get into all the spoilers. If you haven't read the series, go read it now. The way that we start
0: this interview is a crime against humanity, and I hope that you enjoy it. <laughs> also, there's all sorts of stuff about Animorphs and on in there. So, like, oh yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah, fucking go. Have fun. Go play and have fun. Frolic. Go. Amazing. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. All we right. loved Frontline so much.
2: Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're one of the uh, two dozen people who read it, apparently, or two of the two dozen people who've read it. Didn't didn't sell a lot of books, oh. uh, unfortunately. It's weird because I took a, it was a, it was a calculated gamble. So I went to my editor, Catherine Teagan at HarperCollins, who did Gone and everything else, basically. I'm like, well, except for Berserk. Berserk was not her. Um, and I said, Look, son, I'm gonna put down basically two bets. You know, I've made you a lot of money, so bear with me. Here's what I want to do. I want to do uh some horror and I want to do some alt history. And I said, I think the horror will probably make money and the alt history might not. Well, turned out neither one did. So <laughs> so that was good, which is by the way, why I had to uh the big motivator behind uh, one of the big motivators behind the gone spinoff the trilogy monster hero villain or whatever order that came in uh was that i'd uh, been paid too much money and then not uh come through hadn't turned a profit and i'm very much um yeah i'm like a management mentality so i always want to do well for my for my public i want them to make money and i want them to be to be successful so i kind of bought that back by doing the the gone uh, spinoff. and I took a uh, pay cut for that in order to uh, make my editor whole. And for all the good it did now she's uh, uh, quit. she's retired. so uh, even that's kind of pointless. Um, okay, go ahead.
0: All right. well, my first question of course, very, very professional, very normal. How do you write the best villains aka Strand Braxton? that guy? <laughs>
2: um thanks um i i I do i i think i do write good villains you Um, do it was interesting because i've been playing around with a a bunch of different types so typically uh i've i've much preferred nuanced villains that is people who weren't you know all black all white uh, all good all evil um and then i started playing around with uh that i did drake for gone and that was my first no no he's just fucking evil and we have no excuse for no explanation. There's no backstory. We don't know why he's fucking evil. He's just fucking evil. But then uh, in this case, that wasn't appropriate because we had the villains. They were called Nazis uh, in this story. So uh, I focused on them. But yeah, Strand is uh, is intro. I don't think I really thought he was anybody else. It wasn't like I was modeling anybody. But um, I knew that I, I had this feeling right from the start that she was going to end up marrying him at some point at the end out of a sense of duty. Out of a sense of obligation and that it wouldn't work. And then she'd, you know, hook up with uh Jack, right? Yeah, Jack, mm-hmm. British kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We were we were shocked, I think, when we found out that Rio married Strand, because we were both like, okay, we know this guy. Like we have met guys that are just like this guy, and we have like no patience for them. And like, how can Rio do this?
2: Part of it in my in my head was um <clears throat> When i think about all history i try to be as as realistic as i can obviously and as stick as close to the facts as i can you don't have to do that but that was my choice you know it's a zelig kind of book where i take characters and insert them into reality and my thought was i'm gonna make this as real as i can uh and i had actually started off in a different place i was gonna make this much more much more alternate and much less history but then as i got into it i was like now so I thought I better do the same with the characters and carry them forward in ways that made sense. And the thing with Rio was she's motivated by duty and by obligation. And she feels a little bit also like she's, <clears throat> um, uh, God, I can't think of another word, castrated, um, you know, strand to a certain extent. She's braver than he is. She's more capable than he is. And so uh, aware of this, she feels a certain pity for him and a sense of obligation. And so that would lead to this, frankly, stupid conclusion in her life. But you know, people do stupid shit. God knows I do. So, uh,
0: yeah, that's that's too real, almost actually, <laughs> when stated <Yeah. laughs> like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I kind of gave you a little, little uh, relationship with Jack at the end. So she was she was happy in the end, and she had a very nice life and a good retirement.
1: I guess I hope. Well, thank yeah. You. And We love that Rainey was the one to kind of orchestrate that. That was really cool.
2: Um, yeah, it was interesting. So the, uh, w- when I first came at this, um, I knew a couple things I needed or a couple things I wanted. I knew that I wanted a combat soldier. That's Rio. Um, and she's based very much in my mind on Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy, in case you don't know, was a big actor in the 1950s. But before that, he was in the war and he was in fact the most decorated american soldier in world war 2. He fought mostly in Italy against the Germans and Italians. Um, and the reason that he was interesting to me is that he's a little guy. A little tiny guy, smaller than a lot of women. Um, to the extent that the marines uh, wouldn't take him. I said no, no, you're, you're too small and you're kind of, you know, kind of kind of effeminate looking. Uh, if you see a picture of him, you'll go, oh, yeah, I see it. Um, and Then the Navy also wouldn't take him and the army finally took him. But then his officers did everything they could to try to keep him out of combat. Because, again, he was a little guy, looked vulnerable, Uh, you know, not a big, muscly guy. Well, apparently he was, you know, he had something going on because he walked away with a Congressional Medal of Honor and a Silver Star and every other fucking medal you can get. Even from like France gave him medals. Everybody gave medals. Uh, And then he went on, interestingly, to have a lot of PTSD, which he denied. And he pretended he didn't have it, despite the fact that for the rest of his life, he lived with a, a gun under his pillow and had a tendency to wake up screaming in the night. And still he laughed at other guys who um, had PTSD. The whole thing wasn't known at that point. So I, I knew I wanted that arc, the, the I'm in the fucking fight arc. Um, then I wanted a medic because I just think they're lovely people. I mean, it's, an, it's an incredibly brave thing to do, to go into a combat zone without a gun. I mean, at least with a gun, you're going to get shot. But you have this feeling I can shoot back. Well, what, do you, what are you going to do? Throw gauze, you know, throw morphine syruettes at them? I mean, so I wanted to follow that. And I also wanted to get into the racial issues of uh, the American Army, in World War Two, which, was, as you know, was segregated. And the third one was Rio. Uh, excuse me, it was um, rainy um, and I had her because I wanted to, I needed somebody to give me a broader perspective. So to be realistic to a combat soldier, a combat soldier has no fucking idea what's going on. You know, they, they're they they're in the fight. They know that they're in a hole and they got a gun and it's cold. That's, that's what a combat soldier does. Um, and much the same thing with a medic. They're in exactly the same situation. They're hip deep in alligators and they're worried about alligators, not worried about the grand scheme. So I needed a, a Jewish girl because even at that fairly early point in 42, 43, American Jews were starting to get hip to what was going on with Nazi Germany. I mean, they'd seen it developing and they were, you know, suddenly letters stopped coming from Aunt Sophie in Warsaw or wherever. Um, so they were more aware of it. And because she was in intelligence, I could use her to give us a broader perspective. And the fourth one was the uh, the narrator, the framing device. And I did that. I, and, I, and I'm not sure why I did that. I did that to add urgency at the beginning because I knew it was going to be. Um, I knew it had to be a slow takeoff because uh, I wanted to develop my characters first. I knew I was writing a trilogy. I knew it was going to be like fifteen hundred pages, which means you have to build a really strong foundation for your characters. So we had to know who Rio was. We had to know who Frangie was, what their issues were, what was going on with them. We had to know what uh, who Rainy was and what issues were going on with her. So, given the fact that I was going to go all the way through training and everything else and not jump straight into combat. I wanted to be able to frame it in terms of combat. So we start off with Janu, as we know, is the one who's um, the framer, the person in the hospital uh, dealing with it. So I kind of wanted to use that to say, look, we're going to get to the fighting. Just stay with me. We'll get there. <laughs> you know, and that was the idea. And then I, I then I really liked it. A lot of people I don't think did, but um, it was fun. So I don't think I'd ever done anything quite like it before that much of a. Of an intrusive framing device like that, I don't. I'm generally a straightforward, you know, story guy, A, B, C, D, to the end, um, and I tend not to like, you know, time shifts and other things that complicate the narrative because it's fundamentally about telling a story. So that was my thinking going into that. Long answer. I give long answers, and I digress a lot, and I smoke horrible cigars too. So there you go.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's wonderful, and I think that that ended up being one of our favorite parts was that we would have these incredible letters of like, here's how everything has affected us. And then go into the story that like backfilled it. So we, I mean, I love that. Okay. part.
2: Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I thought it worked out fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other big question was, should I show aftermath? That was the other question in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, two other questions. was, I going to kill a main character. Uh, Cause I'm notorious for killing main characters. And I thought the only way to subvert that is to not kill a main character. Uh, I'm going to trick the little fuckers and this time, and I'm not going to kill a main character. All the all the all the Michael Grant fans who are reading it going, and some one of these fuckers is dying. i like, no, they're not. Um, so that was fun. And then the question of should I sh- deal with aftermath? Should I show scenes afterward? And I wanted the whole picture, you know. And sometimes you don't get the whole picture until afterward. But I, I wanted it to work as history. In other words, the history is accurate, except for two things the um the women obviously and the uh and the combat role of black soldiers was moved earlier in the story because i wanted to keep frangie in play right from the start I wanted to get her involved uh, i didn't want her to have to show up just after normandy like she was an afterthought i wanted to i wanted to watch the character go all the way through um yeah so what was the, what was the question <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't even, it doesn't matter because you're answering them all and I'm loving it, but <laughs> yeah, you're um, just banging them out. that does lead me to another question though uh, that we had about, um, about how did you change like strategies, plans, that kind of stuff for the book? Because you wrote about how you didn't want to just take a real person's story and replace them. Like that wasn't yeah. right. So yeah. how did you uh, switch that up?
2: It's very, uh, it, it was complicated because of course, one of the things I was doing to research this was uh, listening to first person narratives. And you can do a lot on YouTube, a lot of them you can find, look around and find them. Um, and I thought, well, these, these guys, these are the real thing here, you know, and I'm not taking their story. I'm not gonna suddenly go, this is not, you know, rings of power. I'm not going to suddenly swap out, um, you know, a female character for a male character and, and act like the men weren't there, that's stupid. Obviously, they were there. Obviously, we have an army today where men and women fight alongside each other. Israel's had an army where men and women both fight. Uh, Russia, certainly during the war, uh, brought women into combat positions or near combat positions um, during the during uh, the invasion by the Germans. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to, I, I guess that was my, My thinking was, I want to do the minimum violence of things. And I don't want to like say, oh, this is, you know, this is the story of Sergeant so-and-so because Sergeant so-and-so's got his own fucking story and he's got a right to it. He earned it. Uh, we're going to leave Sergeant so-and-so alone, but I'm going to stick, I might stick real right next to him, you know, and, and pick up a little bit of the narrative, um, and try to catch the reality of that and the emotion of that. Um, yeah, that was, I guess what I was thinking. <laughs> I think that was the idea.
1: Was there um, was there an aspect of World War II that you wanted to write about, but it just like didn't fit with the story, or you didn't get a chance to get? to Yeah, it?
2: there was a, a conflict in uh, reality fucked with me because um, the in Italy toward, later in the game there's the Anzio landing, uh, so they land at Salerno and they try to fight their way up the boot, uh, and they get up there and then suddenly dawns on them, oh, the whole fucking country is nothing but mountains, um, and mountains are really easy to defend and really hard to beat and the only two paths up the italian coast are on the Adriatic coast or on the uh, the other you know um up the coastal roads uh which led to monte Cassino and 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 the problems there so yeah i wanted to i would i would have liked to be able to cover anzio uh and the entry into rome but i couldn't do it and keep my kids together keep my characters together um, just because uh Rome was actually liberated I believe the day before d day so uh the general in charge Mark Clark did not get his big moment uh he got he got you know the the headlines were taken away from him. but uh so yeah, I had to move everybody to England for the invasion so but and there Jesus there there are so many I mean you know i could have I could have made this fifty characters and gone on forever um but that really wouldn't work so. Yeah, that, that's that's what I had to miss.
0: OK, well, now that you've said you could have 50 characters, another question I had was, um, how did you focus it down to like the three main characters in the narrative and didn't want to insert like Cat or Sergeant Mackie or like one of those perspectives as well?
2: Uh, because it would have been too confusing. Um, in the end, you've got it. You've got to set some kind of limits. Um, and oh, that, that's that's Cat's actually a, an issue I had that I uh, wrestled with because, you know, she's gay. Uh, and it's 1944. Um, and as you know, there were no gay people in 1944. They weren't invented till the 60s. <laughs> so nobody knew what the, nobody knew what that was. And I kept thinking, I wanted to get it in the narrative. but I couldn't figure out how to do it because I don't want to turn my characters into contemporary characters. I want them to be you know people in that space who might have been a little smarter than average, maybe maybe a little bit more enlightened than average. But if Cat had gone to Rio and said, um, "I'm a lesbian," Cat would have been out of the army ten seconds later. That's that's a fact. So I couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, I left hints. I, I felt it was enough hints that people who were paying attention would go, "Oh, Cat's clearly, clearly a lesbian." Um, so, but then I just put it, you know, I, I put a pin in it at the end, in the aftermath, and the aftereffects, uh, dealing with it there. So yeah, there were there were there's a lot of shit i missed that I would have liked to have done. Um, but on the other hand, I also stumbled into stuff that I didn't know was the thing uh, like the, uh, the section with uh, Rainy and oradour soul Um I hadn't known about that. And that's one of those things that, you know, I learned in the, in the process of doing research. And I thought that's too fucking good. I got to do it. Uh, so I had to strain to get uh, uh, Rainy in position for that. Um, and a little Easter egg that will matter to absolutely nobody but me. She landed um, on the coast of France in the town I used to live in, uh, Foura. Yeah, in Charente. Uh, because I went to school and when well, I was a little kid, my dad was an army. So I went to school in uh, French school for uh, three years, I guess. Yeah, from, six, from 61 to 64. So like that. I remember being at school when uh, JFK was shot and my little uh, my mes my- my French friends who come, hey, ton président est mort. Michel, il est tué son, uh, son ton président. Um, so it was like, great. Uh, that's So that's stuck in my memory. And the weird thing was, outside the school, so the school is in uh, Rochefort, which is a town on the coast. Actually, there's several Rocheforts. This is the one that's in, on the Bay of Biscay. Um, and my dad was stationed there. And I went to school there. And right outside the door to my to my school, there was a German bunker. Uh, this giant pile of concrete kind of rounded edges, massive thing which of course, you know we all were desperate to get into Um, but it was all blocked up so we couldn't go play in the bunker and then I went back, uh, visited a couple years ago and I guess they'd finally chiseled that thing out of there Um, and the school was now uh, uh, gender integrated because when I went there it was all boys, all boys on one side all girls on the other it was a trip, I liked French school they used to slap the shit out of me it was fun they would they would come up behind you. This is so this is so fucking old. And and France, you know, it's not even like nineteen sixties in France is more like nineteen forties in the US, because they were just coming out of the war. It was still a poor country. Um kids wore shorts to school largely because they couldn't afford long pants. I was one of the few who could, because uh, we, you know, had an American uh income. But um, but yeah, we would uh sit there very disciplined driven, very uh test driven which is great because i i I can there's no tests i can't beat i it doesn't matter how ignorant i am i can beat the tests um so we'd have pens and uh, actual fucking fountain pens dipping it in the inkwell kind of thing with lots of like curly q letters and all this kind of shit um we had our little chalkboards we have a piece of chalk write quick answers you know turn those around so the teacher can see them but of course the chalkboard is also where you you know fucked off you know drawing dicks and balls and you know, airplanes and tanks and whatever. So the teacher would come up and sneak up behind you while you're fucking around and just, boom, 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 across the face. The one, two, three across the face, which stung, but I didn't somehow mind it at all. Um, It was very, you know, it was was that way. I remember once being in the courtyard of the school. So it's built in like a figure eight, two courtyards and the one courtyard is girls, one courtyard is boys. And um, I remember watching the principal Kick a kid across the courtyard. The kid was lying on the ground. Light snow falling, just so you get the atmosphere. And the I get I don't know what the fuck he'd done, but the principal was there with a glass of wine, which I like, kicking the kid, pushing you know not hard, but you know kicking him as the kid tried to roll away. That was that was French school to me. At least you know this is out in the provinces, of course, so it's like the you know uh, the French version of Alabama. Uh, you know, kind of kind of backward, but yeah, I dug it. Then I came back to the American schools, and it was like they were my bitches because you know I'd already been through it, and they were like, you know, discipline was they'd go, Michael, go to the assistant principal and carry this note, and so it was big production. So we'd have to go there, and yeah, yeah you did this, you did that. Well, okay, today you're going to get six whacks of the paddle. So you bend over, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you're out. Um, but it didn't worry me because I was used to getting the shit slapped out of me. I was, I was already, I was ready to go. <laughs> they couldn't couldn't get a hold of me at that point.
1: Failed. Wow. I
2: had a, I've had a long of life.
0: I can't get over the principal with a glass of wine kicking the kid. That's.
2: <laughs> it was really, uh, the other thing that was weird is they served us uh, lunch at our table. So we'd be at a table and the same, you know, lunch ladies you get in the States, but in this case, they come around like a big thing of soup and ladle out soup in your dish. And you had to finish it all because the next course is coming the same plate. Boom, boom, boom. Eat that up. Pate. You have to make sure you bring your own bread. I don't know why, but you had to bring your own bread. And it was a thing because it's France. You don't, you know, you got to have your bread. Um, yeah, it was a, It was just a, a really weird kind of um, place with the, out, the outdoor urinals or the other thing that. I wasn't crazy about because in the courtyard, the uh, urinals made out of like black porcelain. So they're just, and you know, it gets cold in France—not Minnesota cold—but it gets cold, uh, cold enough that by the end of the winter, there's about six inches of frozen piss all over the uh, urinals. So that was that was the other uh, my memory at that time was the stench of frozen piss. Good times, good times. Okay, oh, like... what else you got?
1: <laughs> oh, um random question uh yeah. in the obituary section uh Jeanneau left her fortune to her friend alberto diaz who is this oh.
2: pool boy uh you know as okay. knew was a beverly hills girl by the end of it you know she'd become wealthy uh, writing books and probably selling screenplays and that kind of stuff and she was never you know a settle down with one guy kind of kind of girl uh so she had fun so she was uh at that point she's you know, by the end of her life, she's wealthy. She's 75 or whatever. Um, and you know, he was a good pool boy. So now he's her husband, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. That's simple as that. It was mostly, and it was mostly just for me. I was, I thought it was funny. That's why often my reason is I think it's funny.
0: Oh, I love that. And that's just in that same sort of vein. One of my favorite ending parts of the book was just where, um, where Janot and, and Rio were in the church together and like you know she kind of looked over and was flicking her off and everything under the table like that kind of stuff just got me i loved it
2: <laughs> okay I'm glad. i think you know um i was i was raised a lot around soldiers so um unlike there are very few people in this country now who have any experience of military service and neither do i i managed to say the fuck out of it but um i was raised to a certain extent on literally on base on various base and army posts um, and certainly was in that milieu up until I was like 20 or so. I was still a uh, still military dependent, theoretically. I could still use military medical services. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, I've gotten, this is a digressive story, but uh, my first published thing, well, I, was, I happened to be in the Azores because my dad, that was his last assignment in the army. He was captain of an ocean-going tugboat station in the Azores, which is like the best gig in the world. I mean, he literally he would walk down the beach in the morning from the house with a cup of coffee, walk down to the pier, take a look around. Yep, still here. And that was that was like his job for the day. You know, fill out some forms and shit. It was it was beautiful. Uh, and he was a warrant officer uh, at that point. He'd served two tours in Vietnam and he was good at his job. So he got a very nice final posting. Anyway, I was there uh, when the Portuguese government fell, the fascist government of Portugal, Um And the Azores has always been very close to the United States because there are actually more Azorians living in the U.S. than there are in the Azores. A lot of, you know, a lot of Azorean diaspora, I suppose, into the States, especially up around Boston. So they wanted to become, they thought they had three choices, either stick with Portugal, which they saw was going socialist in the Azores, very conservative and religious, uh, or independence, which was frankly ludicrous because they don't have the economy for it. And they're 900 miles from Portugal and 2000 miles from the U.S. You know, fishing only carries you so far. Uh, And the third was actually to become a U.S. dependency or even a state. Um, So this organization, the Front for the Liberation of the Azores was formed, a clandestine group, which the Portuguese government took seriously, uh, which we could tell because they had parked a destroyer uh, in the bay, and it wasn't there just for fun. It was like this big gray ship out there. And it was making a point. So we had to meet in secret. Um, and the first uh, clandestine meeting I set up, this is all through George the Crook, who was a bartender um, who catered to Americans. Uh, George the Crook hooked me up with the, with the FLA, the FLA. And so I did uh, got it set up for a very secret interview. They didn't show up. I call and find out, dude, what happened? Oh, there was a soccer game on. So not exactly Che Guevara here, you know. Um, so I had another interview, then I flew over to the Big Island, San Miguel, and interviewed the American consulate. She got all uptight, and I get back to Tercero, which is the island we were on. And um, the, uh, we're called to, to the base, my dad and I, were summoned by uh, a lawyer, a JAG lawyer, and by uh, an officer from Air Force Intelligence who proceeded to tell us that because I was a dependent, I could not be doing this kind of shit or it would reflect badly on the service. And I said, thank you, Uh, I don't care. Uh, And so they proceeded to try to threaten my dad and go, you know, this could really fuck up your career. He was like, you know, look, kids, I'm a year away from retiring. The army's begging me to stay because I'm the only guy who knows celestial navigation in this fucking place. And I can teach trigonometry and all this kind of shit, which nobody else could do. But if you want to, it's too late to fuck up my career. So to my great pleasure, they said, you know, you need to control your son. Uh, And he said, I've never been able to before. I don't know why I should be able to now. So I had to, I wrote this article. I smuggled it off the island because if it went through the post office. They can interdict it. I gave it to a passenger flying back, emailed it, and it made it into the Christian Science Monitor, which in those days was actually a fairly serious newspaper, especially in areas of foreign policy. So that was it. And then for the next, uh, that was 19 and then for the next uh, fifteen years, I made no effort whatsoever to write anything ever again. I was thirty-four when I started writing again. Just you know. But then it's it's been an odd life.
1: That's, so that's incredible. That, that wasn't
2: a, that wasn't an answer to anything. It was just a, a sheer digression for no good reason.
0: That was brilliant.
1: <laughs> So I had a question about, um, some of the letters home specifically, I think it was the first batch, um, where, you know, Rio has like a couple things that are redacted and Brainy has like one thing that's redacted and Frangie has like most of her letter redacted. Um, so some of these, I could kind of uh, like, just off, not knowing anything about war, like some of these, I can see like, okay, you don't want to give like the location of like where you're stationed, whatever. But, um, how, how did you, uh,
2: decide Decide what to yeah
1: exactly it was
2: actually um here's here's my thinking first of all Rainey's uh hipper to the general scheme of things she knows what's going to be redacted so she has fewer redactions because she's smart enough she knows how to get around it frangie's more emotional uh and more direct and she's got a more emotional issue going on with her family she's also black so my guess was that her letters would be more closely scrutinized and then rio somewhere in the middle um, but a lot of times the, the censorship was often, uh, hard to explain, you know, in other words, this is, this isn't, you know, some, uh, brain trust of guys sitting around going, what should we censor? It's a bunch of corporals sitting at a, you know, sitting at typewriters with, you know, some sheet of guidance and, you know, they, they don't, they don't know. So they're doing their best and, you know, then and, and that's the way it was. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily, it literally it deliberately did not necessarily make sense.
1: Did not
2: know that. Thank you. Sure. Um,
0: all right. Was Did you always think this was going to be a World War II story? Did you ever consider writing like other wars or other stories of women in war?
2: Uh, I always meant it to be a World War II story, but I also thought I might write it in a purely allegorical way. In other words, uh, kind of an alternate universe version of it, which is why some of the personal names are odd, because I had deliberately set it into a slightly off universe, uh, but then I kind of liked the names, so I kept some of the names anyway. Um, which, you know, and then, uh, and my excuse to myself was, well, they'll be easy to Google later on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, well, world war two, because it was a specific book. My father-in-law actually gave me, um, shit. Now I'm not going to remember the guy. Uh, he wrote a three book, um, history of world war two and it'll come to me later. But, um, I was like, I already know all this stuff. And then I started reading the book. And I'm like, oh, I don't know all this stuff. And there were these neat little stories. Like there's a, a story I think I included in the book in the first book, where uh, some American officers landed in North Africa ahead of the main body, and they're trying to get a hold of the French, the the um you know the not the non-free French, the Vichy French, and get them to you know surrender peaceably, and not make a thing. And so the scene where they're driving down a road and there's a man standing in the road with a rock. And it's, and he literally, it's a symbolic uh, barricade, which I just thought that's so fucking French. Uh, I got to include that. And what a, and just what a great story, you know? So, yeah. So y- you find stuff like that and then kind of strain to, to find ways to get it into the end of the story.
1: That's awesome. Like we, when we were reading this, we were definitely like seeing all of the, the research that you put into it and how seamlessly you wove that with kind of like the, the thing that you and Catherine do really well, which is to, you know, take characters and just put them through the hell of war and see yeah, what sure. comes out the other side. Been, so
2: I do horrible, horrible things to my characters. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's a tough job being one of my characters. Horrible <laughs> shit gonna happen to you, almost certainly. But yeah, it was say uh, I did a lot of uh for me, a lot of research. So I read that guy's series and I read a bunch of other. So I can't keep track of the names. I read a lot of books. Uh watched a lot of Videos watched a lot of documentaries, and then I was able to go to most of the locations, uh, with the exception being Northern Africa, uh, which at that time uh, was under a, a terrorist threat. In the in the place that I wanted to go to, uh, down to kasserine I didn't really care about being in Tunis. That's that's fine. It would have been a fun trip, but it wouldn't have done anything. And down where kasserine is, which is further into the country side, it was like a fairly serious risk at that point of terrorism. And I thought, yeah, I don't really care that much. Um, not gonna, I'm not going to die for this shit, Jesus. So I'm, you know, I did the best I could with with what I had. But yeah, I did things like I uh, went, crawl under tanks, you know, in museums because I wanted to know if a, if you're a soldier and a tank rolls over you, what's that look like? And touching stuff. And I don't know if it if it comes across the right. I I think it might in some way, but there's something about uh, there's a big fucking tank in the British war museum just sitting there in the middle of everything. And until you're up next to them, you don't, you don't understand what monstrous, terrifying things these are. If you're a guy walking by on foot and you know, and you and you bang on it and there's no sound really because the armor's that goddamn thick, you know, there's no, it's not bing, ding, ding. It's blood. Um And uh, same thing with uh, planes. You know, I went, I did a lot of, uh, even though we, didn't do a lot of airplane work so to speak um, did uh, there was a, a barracks that I wanted to go to but I got pictures of it so it's good enough it was in Georgia or something like that the um I'll tell you an Easter egg that's a little um, <laughs> embarrassing not embarrassing but a little odd in retrospect the the camps that they train at Camp Marin and Camp Zakelelli Mark Marin comedian and Louis CK, also comedian. So that was my little, uh, (laughs) little nod, little thing that I was like, at literally nobody's ever going to get this, but you know, those are my favorite kind of Easter eggs, the ones where no one's going to get it. Uh, the whole thing with, and gone with, uh, uh, with Zill and his crew and each of the characters is vaguely inspired by the inner circle of the Nazis. Um, and sometimes the name and sometimes in some really attenuated way that made no sense to anybody ever uh literally nobody has ever said you know when you say hank that's in german that's heinrich and isn't he a little bit like heinrich himmler literally nobody um so (laughs) you know but it amuses me you know keeps me keeps me entertained for the moment
0: Oh man, well now when we get to Gone, this is gonna haunt me and I'm gonna be looking up every single one.
2: Well, that was that was the main one. I was like, literally nobody's gonna get this, but okay, fuck it. You know, I don't care. The oh, the one that if you were a real history buff, you might have gotten is Lance. Because Lance, in the context of that group, was the normie. He seemed normal. He was a nice looking guy. He wasn't, you know, socially ostracized or anything, unlike the rest of them. Well there' a in the uh, Nazi Empire there was uh, of course Albert Speer who was the exactly that for Hitler he was the he was in society people knew him he was an accomplished architect uh, gave his credibility to Hitler and of course Albert Speer, the word for Speer, which in English would be lance so yeah that it's just and i I, I would like waste a morning just fucking around with that just trying to come up with, with that kind of shit.
0: That's very cool, though. I like that. (laughs) Um, So I had no idea that you traveled to like all of these or a ton of these places to do research. Like, yeah, now I just want to know cool stories from that.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, the first big one was uh, Sicily, and I had never been to Sicily before. Um, And I just I just wanted to go be on the beach and go, Okay, I'm on the beach. What what am I seeing? Um, And then follow it through. Now, unfortunately, uh, people have been building stuff since then. Um, they haven't left everything exactly intact, but still you get a, there's, there's a, it's hard to, de- it's hard to describe what it does for you, but it, every writer I've ever known who does research on this kind of stuff goes, it, it does, it somehow sinks in and it, and it, it kind of comes across on the page. So like much later I went to, uh, Luxembourg. So there's a big battle in the third book, uh, that's in, you know, the Hertgen forest, uh, and, uh, battle of the bulge kind of thing. And I had read this kind of stuff, you know, and you think, well, they're probably exaggerating, you know, about how you walk through the trees and the branches are horizontal and you can barely move through them. And when they, when the Germans fired, it would blow splinters into people. So then I walked into the forest and like, Oh my God. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Uh, the trees actually are that close. The branches are low and horizontal and you are moving like, you know, it, it's almost impossible. And you get that feeling. And somehow the, uh, the experience of walking up a hill, it, you know, it gets, you realize, oh, this, that's how this works. You stumble, you grab. What, if I'm grabbing a tree to hold myself up, where's my gun? Am I, am I able to carry my, my rifle? How much weight am I carrying? How much do I have to lean into this? How hard is it to get through the trees? You now, if I dig in this dirt, what's this dirt feel like? So all that kind of uh, little detail uh, stuff. Plus, you know, it's tax deductible and I got to travel. So that was fun. <laughs> I went to uh, Sicily, Italy. Uh, France, uh, UK, of course, Luxembourg, a little bit in Germany oh, and Belgium, of course, for uh, uh, Battle of the Bulge uh, and the uh, Malmedy uh, massacre, um, which is not like a preserved thing or something. You just go by this little marker and you go, oh, shit, that's where it was. Uh, but it was still, if I remember correctly, it's still like they left a field there. And it looked reasonably enough like pictures, you know, that I had of that time. But also um, being there, you get the sense of the weather, um, you know, the 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 gloom where the where the clouds hang. It's just all that kind of little shitty little detail stuff that you can pick up. Um, plus, it was a great hotel in Luxembourg. had a good had a good time. <laughs> a good time. That, was, that was a kick. I enjoyed that. I'd never been to Luxembourg, so I was like, ah, cool, this is good. And it was all on my on my own. My wife uh, was not able to come with me because she was working. Um, so it was just you know. Uh, off on my own crawling around in tanks it's like such a boy you know boy vacation where are you going going to europe to crawl in tanks excellent
1: <laughs> <laughs> um visiting some of these places particularly like like that field and um i think you did you go to one of the the camps um
2: uh, yeah i went to uh uh went to uh dachau uh and saw the famous uh Arbeit, Mach Frey. Work makes freedom, um, thing. But it's not. There's not a lot there. What there are now is uh, you can see on the ground the the um, concrete um, pad or the concrete foundation below various different um, you know barracks. But it's pretty much torn down. And it was freezing cold when I was there. Um, so we went around. There wasn't a lot to see. But it was more like I felt like I should. So it didn't really inform me. But it, um, you know, and also I'm Jewish. You know, arguably not religious at all, but my mother's Jewish. And so I thought, you know, it's like one of those things you do. You go to you go to Dachau um, and uh, managed to get that into the into the story. And all that, that's all true. The, the Dachau train, the famous Dachau train at that point, that's that's all completely accurate. Um, you know, whether or not American soldiers carried out acts of uh, impetuous revenge, Um yeah, there were there were I think that was I think that happened a lot or a fair amount um, and uh, mostly covered up. There were attempts to charge, I think, a couple of American soldiers under those circumstances. Um, and I forget, I think it was Eisenhower who was actually pushing for if I'm if I'm and don't quote me on that because it's been a while since I did this research. Uh, he was pushing for actual, uh, you know, taking action against these these people. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> there's not, there's not a jury on earth, not even a military jury that's ever going to find you guilty for that. And I went, oh, and I went to Oradour. It was a fucking heavy place, heavy place. It's, it's just you know the way I described it, except now it's all uh, De Gaulle when he took, when he came back, you know, when he took out, when he became president of France, uh, they wanted to rebuild Oradour, and he said, no, no keep it, build another town next to it, but keep this, which I thought. French uh, sensibility for history. I appreciate that, but a dark fucking place. In its own way, darker than Dachau, even though you know what happened at Dachau. It's just in Oradour. It's like right. It's like right there. You have a little sign to Sorry, it's, it stuck yeah. with me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just us reading those parts was really, really rough. So yeah. Um,
2: when you're, when you're looking at the church that people were burned alive in, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that'll get you. Okay. But enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. more. Yeah. And you know, it was the wrong town too. Yeah. Yes. It was another oh, Ovadur they were supposed to exterminate. Supposed to.
1: So fucking mad.
2: Also, then I found out yeah. when I found out that the uh, commandant, nobody was quite sure how he died. I was like, <laughs> sweet i got this that that gave me a free pass to you know have uh have rainy kill him
0: and i very much like that was the little bit of you know cathartic action that we could
2: a little bit of justice
0: Mm -hmm. now that (laughs) all of that has just made me think what was the hardest part of the book to write for you
2: it was it was honestly um syncing up my story with history that's, that was, I mean, if you're talking about in the technical sense, what well, was difficult to do that, um, but, oh, and earlier than that, I'd totally forgotten this. The first probably 200 pages of that fucking book, I rewrote maybe three different ways because I wasn't sure if I want to use first person, third person. I wasn't sure if I was going to use present tense, past tense. I'd never written in present tense before. So I went through and do it all present past tense. Go, go back and do it all present tense. Try first person. Eh went back and forth on it and thought and finally came up with um, writing a present tense, uh, third person, uh, limited, you know, limited omniscience through a narrator, uh, not through a narrator, but through character. In other words, I forget the term of art for that, but you see what the character sees and you don't see anything more than the character sees. There's no omniscience. There's no God in the sky telling the story, um, which is interesting. I found this guy. Uh, I don't remember how I stumbled on his name. This guy named Guy Gavriel I think K-A-Y, uh, who does something interestingly similar. He writes books that are set in historical times, but he did what I first started out to do. changes all the names. So he'll have something set in Renaissance Italy. And after a while, you go, oh, so this town is actually Sorrento and that name is actually Rome and this is Florence. Okay, now I'm getting it. So he did it that way. Uh, but he also used a God's Eye View narrator, which I'd never done before. And, um, felt awkward to me and it felt a little old-fashioned maybe um so i wanted so i decided on present tense which was just a a a horrible mess because i kept having to change shit my natural default is past tense uh third person or past tense first person but i'd never written present tense so i kept having to go back through things god damn it no not was is you know all the way through so that was so the technical issues were the timing uh, and then my own questions about person and, and voice. Um, and then I knew that it was slow and I knew uh, I'm going to open up Goodreads. The first thing I'm going to get from people is slow opening, uh, which is where I came up with the framing device. Uh, okay, at least promise them that we are going to have a war here eventually. But I wanted to talk about the training in, in part because that would be the first place where the women would have to uh, coexist with male soldiers. And also, it was the first place where we get to see what Frangie's life was like uh, in, a, in a segregated army. So I wanted, I wanted that, and I wanted also to build the characters. Uh, I don't, I hate these uh, unearned uh, characters. You know, these characters who just suddenly they're great, and you, you're like, well, why are you great? How'd you get great? Okay, well, I wanted to see how we got great. I wanted to see how, you know, how Rio learned to fire a gun, how she learned to get along with. Um, often hostile male superiors and peers so yeah it was it was i so none of that was it was honest to god i think it's my best work it's the thing i'm proudest of having written uh it's certainly not the most popular but it was uh not hard in the sense that you know i was struggling every day because i very seldom struggle uh in writing um but it was hard integrating my characters into history Without stealing other people's stories, keeping it realistic, um, and all of that—that was—that was, I guess, the complicated part. Once I got past the essential issues of voice and uh, tense uh, and uh, perspective, you know, POV. The fun part was the aftermath. That was actually fun. The uh, obituaries—I hit upon that idea at the last minute because you see so many of those, and I thought, you know, you're, you you see these people. Or I used to. You don't see them anymore, but you see them with Vietnam people in uh, later generations, where they go around and you go, this seems like an average schmo, you know, working at a store somewhere, and you go, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, this guy was a fucking hero. We should we should acknowledge that. And I wanted to get into it. And also, it was a place where I could say the cat was a lesbian, make make clear in the after effect, in the aftermath. And the aftermath is a big part of it. I didn't want it to be like Frangie came home and all the problems are solved. I, you know, I wanted to show Frangie comes home and the world is just as fucked up as it was but maybe some more progress came out of that so i wanted to hint it maybe some progress came out of that because that would be realistic but not so much that it was panacea and everything solved
1: is that is that most of our questions i think
0: that is that's most of the ones that we had about the book specifically but we have a couple more
2: okay shoot
0: oh i was just gonna say what are you working on now if you can say
2: well, mostly we're um, pitching the um, TV series, and that has involved a bunch of little things like writing scripts and mostly writing what are called decks, presentation decks, and writing uh, letters back and forth and emails back and forth and pitches. We've done a lot of pitches, which you know, I'm I'm having very mixed feelings about dealing with um, these people. And when I say these people, I mean I don't know if you can see. This, this is where I, this is actually my workplace. I work outside most of the time. with my hideous mass of half smoked cigars over there is uh, down there like cuz it's California I've got a pool. Uh, but over there where you can't see it is the Hollywood sign. So dealing with those people um and I'm finding it uh frustrating and kind of pointless and honest to god if if it weren't for the fans nagging me to uh do this I would have probably quit to be to be perfectly honest because I'm not good at um, putting up a lot of bullshit, and uh, and it's not like anybody is there's nobody like it's not that cliche of uh, it's an old Frankie Muniz picture where um, the uh, Hollywood executive turns green or something at some point, you know. I don't know, in any case, he's uh, you know, they're all these kind of cliche like wearing medallions and you know, going, hey, baby, it's not that the people I, I've dealt with are always they're often very well informed, very smart, um, they know what they want. So it's not that kind of a, an experience. It's more like, Jesus Christ, is there no end to this? You know, I, I just give me a fucking answer. You know, yes or no. If it's no fine, I'll write a sad tweet to the fans and go, sorry, it didn't work out and move on with my life. But um, there, it seems to be a perpetual thing, which is it's very much like the publishing experience I never had to endure that everybody else does have to endure, where they keep sending shit off and keep sending it off and keep sending it off. And they're like, uh, what? Yeah. Is there a point? Are we getting somewhere? And I've never had to deal with that because uh, literally every book I've ever written has been published. Um, so I've just been, you know, it's been this kind of um, very easy ride for for both uh, Catherine and me uh, from the start. We got by with a very little. Actually, I don't think any rejection it sounds terrible, but I've had very. I mean, if I'm sure there was, but you know, it was something that was overcome. So it had been a temporary rejection, and then I sold it to somebody else. But um, now, so now here, it's not even that they they reject you; it's just that at some point you're doing the pitch and you go, and you get this realization: this isn't going to work. NBC is this is not an NBC show. For fuck's sake, why am I wasting my time? And most of this is on Zoom. Uh, some of it's in person, and we are actually making some progress. And I will say this: we will have had a fair shot. I tweeted this the other day. We are getting into see enough people um, uh, and enough access, and enough people are listening respectfully. That if it's not right for the market, well, it's not right for the market. No, I can't do anything about that. All I can do is try to pitch the thing. So during all this, you know, Catherine's like cranking out books left and right, and they're all f- hitting the bestseller list, which is great because you know joint checking account. So it's it's all good for me, um, but. this period of time i've had um i've started a couple of books and we're building this website and i when i say we i mean me and tech people and um our eldest daughter clara who's a tech person and it's it's not you know a blog it's it's kind of a thing uh it's like well over a hundred thousand dollars has gone into setting this thing up so far and the idea is to combine all of our shit have it all in one place so between us we've got We always say 150 books because every time we count, it comes out different, but um, we think it's it's 150 and plus between the two of us jointly, severally, whatever, probably closer to 160 or more, 170. Um, We wanted to have it all in one place. And the key to this was that uh, we got publishing rights back to uh, Everworld and Remnants, which are two series we'd done earlier. Uh, So those are ours again. Holy ours! They don't anymore belong to Scholastic, except for the fucking movie rights. In any case, he says, getting past that. um So we thought we'd get all this. So I, we're uh, recovering, like twenty-five books all told. So the Everworld and Remnants, and these two adult thrillers that I wrote, published in Britain, didn't like the way they published it. Didn't like the names they gave it. Uh, didn't like the market. It just and so I said, look, how about I give you your money back and you give me back my books? And they said, okay. So I took back my books. Those are getting recovered uh, and the book interior redesign. So this is an expensive process. This isn't, you know, cheap. Um, Cause I'm commissioning like 24, 25 covers between that. And some. and I'm writing some new stuff for the website as well. So there's, for example, of Animorphs, um, there's an interview with Cassie uh, done by Rolling Stone years after. And it's like, 25 30 pages or something and i thought that's the kind of thing i can't publish anywhere else but i can on a website that i own uh the catherine i own and did a couple of uh, gone riffs did a couple of uh, gone detective stories uh set in the world with lesser characters and i think the occasionally you see the main characters but they're kind of off in the distance or they have a peripheral role ideally uh, is big I- involved but more or less in a supervisory occasional role so it was good for all that and then um and i realized that i basically at this point when is when this goes up in a few months i have essentially a publishing company that belongs to us uh we've got uh, the editor we've got the copy editor we've got book designer we've got cover artists you know and i've got a place to to sell them all and i've been kind of interested in that Uh, i've Every time I've had a problem in publishing, it's because I gave up power to somebody else. and Or I, I said, okay, that's good enough. And I'm always mad at myself for that. The original covers for gone, being a perfect example. I hated those fucking covers. I knew they were the wrong covers. I said, they're the wrong covers. And they said, well, we're really, it's Collins. we wargamed it amongst our little group of people. And I said, listen to me there's not a boy on earth who can carry this goddamn book across campus without getting beat up. Are you kidding me? It looks like a Mormon uh, romance novel. You know, it looks like they're looking off a Astrid there in a fucking negligee, it looks like, with somehow giant tits staring off into the distance like Jesus is coming. It was like, have you read the fucking books? Because it's a whole lot more about kids being beaten to death with baseball bats than it is about, you know, Astrid looking hot. Uh, could we do that? Um, they said, no. Now we're gonna do these. I said, okay. And it's not a hill I was prepared to die on. I didn't have the power at that point. And then my British friends, Egmont, uh, since purchased by HarperCollins, but Egmont put the perfect covers on it. I don't know if you've seen the original British covers, but they were matte black and just gone. And it was like radioactive green behind it. And my name was barely visible and raised lettering down below black on black. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, those were the covers. Those are the goddamn covers right there. They're which so is why good. I, which is why I sell more books proportionally by far in the UK than I did in the states because Harper put shitty covers on them. So, but there wasn't much I could do about that. But then again, that's a case of okay, I gave up. I said okay, uh, and when it came to the thrillers I wrote, I said these are horrible titles. You know, an, an artful assassin in Amsterdam. It's like fuck you, and and I told them what I said. No, no. That's, that's not how you do it, because if we're doing this, we're, we could be doing more. So you set up a, a shtick, you know, a regular repeatable kind of format, uh, like Sue Grafton did with, you know, L is for lazy or whatever, if you want to do the alphabet kind of thing. Uh, and so I, had, I knew how I wanted to do it. So I changed the names uh, instead of oh, Cyprus, whatever the fuck the Cyprus one was. So now it's, you know, Cyprus with a knife and Amsterdam with a noose. So it's a repeatable format. And of course, that whole thing is just me finding ways to write off my vacations. Uh, plus, plus channeling elements of my past, which I don't know if you know anything about uh, my long, sad history, but I used to be in the crime business. So uh, I went to Amsterdam, uh, that particular one. The first one, Cyprus, is not a not a caper, but the other one's a caper. And uh, I wanted to figure out how to rob the Rijksmuseum. So I spent like a week in uh, Amsterdam going to the Museum every day, looking, spending way too much time looking at security cameras, you know, and that kind of stuff, and security doors and measuring steps. How the hell nobody jumped out of uh, out of there as security, because, you know, they're obviously watching, who's this, this idiot? Look, this is a fat American walking around doing this shit. Um, so I, I was able to work that all out, and I was really proud of myself because um, I don't know if you know the problem with art theft, but the problem with art theft is not stealing the shit. Stealing it is easy. Most of your art thefts are guy pulls up in a car, whips out an, you know, in a van, brings out a ladder, puts it up against the wall, bang, bang on the window, grab the thing and run. It's over in five minutes. It's not sophisticated. It's not, you know, it's not Tom Cruise coming down on a fucking wire. Um, it's, you know, it's it's that. The problem is you can't sell it. So, you know, let's say I successfully steal the Mona Lisa. Now what? Hi, I've got the Mona Lisa for sale. No, it doesn't work, which is why you get these cases of like $100 million art theft never shows up on the market. And 20 years later, they're going through somebody's uh, storage bin. Oh, here it is, because they could never get rid of it. So you have to turn theft into extortion. That was was the insight that I had. That was my criminal insight was um, the thing you do with the Mona Lisa is not try to sell it. The thing you do with the Mona Lisa is threaten to burn it. Give me money or I burn it. And that was, that was the essential insight turn art theft into extortion. People pay $10 million not to burn the Mona Lisa, but you can't go down to the flea market and pawn it off You know, and get $10 million for it. So I was doing, so that's what I've been up to. Also, I've written a bunch of stuff. There was this idea that for the website, we would try to do something that was in the Animorphs vein. So I fucked with that for a while and I couldn't, and I, I didn't get anything I liked, but I've got two, three, 250, 250 pages each different versions of me trying to figure that out, work that out, Um, both of which were fine ideas in and of themselves, and I may go back to them, but the time wasn't right, Uh, and I'm working on, I've got other stuff, like these weird projects um, that I know I'm never going to sell, like um, this thing called the CEO of Hell, um, which is, you know, satire. Uh, Obviously, it takes place in Hell. Um, That and uh, something else I was working on. Oh, and a screenplay so i've written uh for my mostly for for practice uh a couple of screenplays one of which now is my producers is you know getting ready to try to sell it um and i've been it's been kind of very educational because one of his people woman named miriam uh currently living in prague and i get on zooms and she walks me through how to turn book into script in other words and it involves take out all the interesting fun stuff and just have descriptions you know i have no i mean no like description so it's, it's not a it's not a building with x y and z it's a building it's that kind of shit. it's everything you teach a book writer not to do um so i'm still kind of working on that and i'm at a point also of thinking i don't really enjoy that um and also thinking it, maybe it's not my great strength because what i'm good at is ideas what i'm good at is uh what locally is known as intellectual property so I'm good at coming up with concepts, but going through the whole process of like a TV series and stuff, and as you get to the as you get into the pitch of the TV, I originally thought, well, I'm gonna have to fucking write all this myself, and so I did the math, and I yeah, you know, I can write, I can do it. But the closer we got to it, the more I thought, wait a minute, why am I doing that? Why am I not just George R. R. Martin? Why am I not just you know cruising in at eleven o'clock, going, yeah, I don't like that, uh, then you know having lunch and leaving. Um that's, that's that's a whole lot easier. So now we're at the point of going, no, no, we need actual showrunners, you know, people are gonna actually sit down and write this shit, um, in a room full of other people all straining to write this shit. And the more I looked at, you know, me in a group, me in a inside of a hierarchy, uh, um, dude, you know, that's part of the problem is I've got too good a life. You know, I when I work, I work three hours a day, you know, sitting here. Uh, looking out over the palm trees and out over the silver lake reservoir and oh look there's the uh you know griffith park observatory i've got a ridiculously good life that i in no way deserve and i'm not i haven't had to show up at a place at a time in like 30 years you know like a job or put on you know wear special clothing you know it's it's been sweatpants for 30 years um and then I think, no, now you got to go and like deal with people. And it's not just the people above me, which is uh, all but impossible for me to deal with. Um, I don't know if you ever read, did you read this? The uh, trilogy spinoff of Gone, the monster hero shit.
0: Not uh, yet, but we will.
2: There's a character in there when you get to him. He's he's deliberately me mocking myself because he's a, he's a big dumb white kid with oppositional defiant disorder. In other words, he has he, he finds it almost impossible to ever do what he's told by anybody. And then the secret joke running under it is he's, he's with Decca through most of the story is that somehow he still takes orders from Decca? But, mm-hmm. you know, he's, the, the ODD doesn't kick in, which is very much uh, my experience, of course, with my wife. I'm, I'm having fun with that. You know, I can't can't take orders from anybody else, but I certainly do what I'm told. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, so I've got a bunch of partial books. Oh, and I've started writing a memoir, which um, we don't uh, we we don't want to have come out until Catherine's uh, closer to the end of her career <laughs> before I start blurting out the truth to everybody and their brothers, um, you know, the whole fucking story. And, you know, she's, like I say, selling books left and right, um, getting beautiful reviews, being the writer I always knew she could be if she would stop hanging out with me, um, doing beautiful stuff. It's no coincidence that as soon as she stopped working with me, she won the Newbery Prize. I'm like, yep, I can see that. She's very much of a, uh, you know, she's uh, she's more of a portrait artist, you know, and I and I'm a muralist. I do big shit without a lot of, you know, the fine granular uh, prose uh, considerations. And she, in her heart, would love to just be able to write poetry, you know. So we're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum, and sometimes it works together. But now we're kind of doing our own little individual things. So yeah, I've been busy, but not produ- but not uh in a way that shows. I put it that way.
0: Yeah. Well, not yet. But then all at once yeah. it'll all show up and you'll see like just how much there is, and it'll
2: be the website'll come up. Yeah. Maybe we'll sell the TV series and maybe I'll be George R. R. Martin, with the difference that I actually finish my fucking books, don't okay. I? Yeah. Just just, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. Ten fucking <laughs> years to write that fine. Are you kidding? me? Don't tell me you're still, you're not working on it, George. Don't lie to me and tell me you're working on it. You're not working on it. You've gone Hollywood. It's a hell of a lot easier to cruise onto the lot, have everybody kiss your ass and go to a meeting and sound, you know, and sound, uh, you know, important than it is to sit down there and grind through what for him would be some 700 goddamn page book. I mean, I get it. Believe me. You know, I could, I totally understand it. Writing is a very solitary thing. You know, you're not, you're not in meetings. People aren't kissing your ass. There aren't. Like, you know, attractive people around you uh, looking up to you with adoring eyes. You're sitting there in your fucking chair with your laptop or, you know, whatever you write on. And it goes on day after day after day. And in his case, you know, apparently 10 years. But yeah, uh, one of the part of our pitch is we actually have the thing. The thing is done. And the thing worked. Okay, it worked all the way through. The last book was good. First book was good. It all worked. Um, you don't have to like pretend to be able to carry on the story on your own, and come out with the disaster that was the end of uh, Game of Thrones. And by the way, it wasn't just season eight. I was starting to see it by season five. I was starting to go, mm, and then by season six, I was like, maybe they're just tired. You know, they're probably just exhausted by this point. I, I mean, and then seven, a season seven, like, no, they're fucked. They're totally fucked. They can't do this. They don't. They don't have the chops. At the point where you see Peter Dinklage. Dinklage for fuck's sake wandering around doing nothing but castration jokes with that other guy for like two seasons you realize no the writers have lost control they have no idea what the story is um so yeah I, I was not surprised by that and because you know it and I I understand it. it's very hard to pick up somebody else's narrative and walk it forward because George R, R. Martin a the man he's a hell of a writer and he's a he's the best world builder since Tolkien himself I mean, he's a fantastic writer. I admire the fuck out of the guy. And the first five seasons of Game of Thrones, fucking brilliant TV. So good job, George. Um, but yeah, I, f- I finished mine.
1: <laughs> that note, is there any other media that you're currently watching or reading that you would recommend?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> I, read, I watch a lot more TV than I read books. Um, I love Barry. Have you watched Barry with Bill Hader? Great show. I
0: haven't, it keeps getting recommended though.
2: (laughs) Gotta watch Barry, gotta watch. There's this weird show, I think it's been renewed and I believe it's network. I think it might actually be like CBS or something or NBC called um, uh, We Are Lady Parts. Have you seen that? Okay, here's the premise. And this is one of the reasons I admire this thing so much. The premise is it's in England. It's an all female, all Muslim punk band. And I just imagine the pitch and the people going, what? And, and you think this can't possibly work, and then you watch it. it's brilliant, it's great. Um, it's a really neat show and a really you know different, di- you know, you're know, you seeing something that you haven't seen before and an impossible premise. Dairy Girls, um, the first episode of Dairy Girls, I would recommend to anybody just says, you wanna see how to delineate character in an incredibly brief period of time I mean, you come out of that first episode and you know like nine people by the end of season two, by the end of episode two, you know, 15 people and you know them all really well. That's the amazing thing. I mean, to the point where you know what you can guess the next, the the reaction to the next event. Um, So, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I thought the latest Star Trek thing was not bad. Um, The newest one, the uh, bold new world, whatever the hell they called it, uh, was not bad. Uh, I've got a hate on for Rings of Power, i got to admit, like a lot of people. And I kept, you know, the funny thing is I always knew how it was going to go wrong. I'd uh, see all these assholes on YouTube going, you know, Black Elf, Black Dwarf, what the fuck? It's like, dude, it's not going to be your problem. Your problem is going to be that the writers aren't going to know how to write this because there's no book. There's, you know, there's Appendices and the Silmarillion, which is more or less a collection of vaguely interrelated stories. And so you get to the show, it's like, oh yeah, there's no fucking story. And they don't know what to do with character. It's the most incompetently written thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's just you just look at it. It's, I've I could only watch the first three episodes. It's so bad I can't hate watch it. And I can hate watch Blue Bloods. And we do, you know, because we we have you know set the bar fairly low for hate watching. But I would look at it because I because I care about the 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 thing. I care about the I care about Tolkien. You know, I'm I'm that nerd. You know. Big part of the reason I'm a writer is because of Tolkien. I didn't notice the world, you know, the natural world till Tolkien. So he's, he's, he's important to me. His work is important to me. I have literally no problem with black elves and black dwarves. I don't give a fuck. I give a fuck that they don't know how to write a story and that they've taken something that's great and just absolutely dragged it through the shit to come up with this monstrosity they've made. They've managed to make you hate hobbits, for God's sake, I mean, that's 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 working on it. The point where you hate the fucking hobbits. You're like, I hope the hobbits die. They call them Harfoots. They're hobbits. I hope the orcs find these little bitches and kill them. Now, when you're thinking that about the people, you're supposed to think, oh, aren't they cute? Uh, that's not good. And when the main character, every time she shows up on scene, you're like, oh, please, God, kill her. Just, you know, just, yay. she's I, Maybe she'll die. But she can't die, of course, because she's Galadriel. She's Kate Blanchett. And you have that in your head now. Granted, no actress in the world wants to be told, you know, you're going to have this character where eventually you're going to grow up and you're going to be Kate Um, That's that's tough enough already. But they gave her nothing to work with. I just, it's just a horrible, goddamn train wreck of a show, uh, and it and it pisses me off. Uh, Hacks is great. You seen Hacks? Brilliant, brilliant show. I love Hacks. You got to watch that. It's on. Uh, HBO, I think maybe if you have HBO, it's um, what's her name and what's her name? In any case, it's basically um, it's kind of a riff on probably on Joan Rivers, you know, early uh, early female stand ups in the kind of the Vegas world, and it's really funny and really and they do the intergenerational thing well. Um, so yeah, a lot of that, and of course, you know, books read my wife's books, I don't, but you know, you should. <laughs>
0: We will. I mean, we, we get them every time, including like the sign posters and stuff. We're nerds about it. So
2: I don't I've not I think the only book I read uh, the one only Ivan, but only because we had the screenplay for the movie sent to us. And uh, she was like, I don't want to I don't know anything about screenplays. And I, was like, I don't either, but I'll read it. So I read it and started seeing there's a problem here and a problem there. And she goes, yeah, that was in the book. And I'm like, fuck, I better read the book before I start shitting all over this. <laughs> so I read the book. And uh, yeah, we liked the movie though. Have you seen the movie? The one with only Ivan movie?
0: I haven't yet.
2: on Disney Plus. Uh, It was actually a good job. And it was uh, a little bit of backstory there. So uh, this guy named Sam Dickerman used to work at Sony Columbia and his kid was a big Gone fan. So he had me in, talked to him, talked to Hannah Mangala who's like the boss there. We want to be in the Michael Grant business. You know, I think we're going to, I'm really convinced we, we should buy this book. Two weeks later, the son of a bitch quits, moves to Disney. And the first thing he does, buys Kay's book. It's like, God damn it. So, you know, good news, bad news situation, all crunched into one. Um, <laughs> God, yeah, I'll hold that grudge for a few thousand years.
0: Oh. It could have been worse. Could have been a different book.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. And, and in any case, I always knew Gone should not be a movie. I, as I said from the start, I remember being early on, some producers were trying to pitch it as a movie, and i go to meetings with them and shit. And I remember being at Lionsgate, you know, which had done Hunger Games and uh, uh, what's uh, Veronica Roth's thing, Divergent. So they were big in the YA space, and uh, I was sitting there with one of the execs from Lionsgate and the producers going on about it. And about halfway through, he leans over to me with paper and goes, this is TV, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes this should be tv thank you very much so that's that's the big push right now is we're trying to get gone uh, for tv we have lost control never had control over animals we can't we've done everything we can to try to save that i mean and it's been just you know scholastic has no respect for people who've uh, written their books no respect for people who made them a lot of money they don't give a fuck about anything apparently, but you know, control over the end product. They formed a partnership with Picture Start, which is a former Lionsgate guy, different Lionsgate guy, um, and came at us with this bullshit offer. You know, here we'll give you some money if you, when you, you, you know, and, and we really value your input. You know, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> so it was clear that they didn't. Very quickly clear that they weren't gonna. They had no interest in anything. Uh, so we, we blew them off and we've been, you know, ever always been trying because we don't want another Nickelodeon animal show. Um, I take it personally that they take my IP and, uh, embarrass our fans. You know, a lot of people grew up on animals. It matters to people the way, the way when I see Tolkien being butchered, it matters to me. Um, and I don't want them to do it. And I think they're going to, I think they're probably going to make a shitty movie. Um, And there's nothing we can do to stop it, apparently. But we own gone. So gone doesn't go anywhere unless I say it goes somewhere. And I've had lots of offers just to buy rights. You know, the call, go, hey, can we buy the rights for 50 grand? I'll go, no. Fuck you. Um, Because I know what happens with the rights deals. It sits in somebody's drawer for the rest of our lifetimes, and we never hear from it again. Um, So I said, no, I'm not interested in doing it, unless it's a production that I have some faith in. And I've told this story many times before, but I was in England with Catherine, and we were looking, looking to move there, um, looking at neighborhoods and shit, getting, you know, getting detailed about it. And uh, I had this meeting with AJ, and uh, I'd never met the guy; it was just some guy who, you know, reached out to me at uh, on Twitter. Um, I said, "Cool," um, and we sat down. And he said, uh, "Basically, I want you to write it, or at least, you know." be in the supervisory position. I said, bingo. That's what I wanted to hear. and um, so uh he paid me one dollar for the rights that I'd been offered, you know, six and seven figures for, gave me a dollar. I said, okay, let's see if we can do this. And we're that's what we're trying to do now. Um even as I become increasingly frustrated with the <clears throat> the pace of it. Um and there and other and the requirements of dealing with, uh, scripts, with hierarchies, with layers of people. And then there's another meeting and yet another meeting, and then you're going to meet with this person after you had that meeting. It's like, God damn, just fuck off and let me write. So whenever I'm, you know, bummed or depressed, uh, you know, the answer is always the same for me. Well, write something, which, you know, sounds obvious, but like, well, why don't you shut the fuck up, quit whining and sit down and write something. It's like, okay, i will write something. So, um, I've got a couple projects like like I say partway done, um, and a uh, couple of things that'll probably never see the light of day, but I'll put them up on the website for the hell of it. Um, and then I'll see. And I've got this idea for a framing that I can do because I, I have I tend to write in series, as as you will have noticed. Um, and I, like I said, I'm a muralist. And I write big canvas. Um. So I've so I came up with this framing device. I think that's going to allow me to do stuff that doesn't have to be a particular length because when you think of an idea so when i thought of um, gone for example or when catherine and i thought of animorphs um you get a sense of how big it is like how how far can i stretch this out it never occurred to us we're gonna get 63 books out of animorphs but okay we knew it we knew it had it had a plot engine you know it was built in um uh, it was based very much in our minds on this old tv show called combat uh, which was uh, these guys, black and white, these guys uh, post-Normandy, they're a platoon in France fighting Nazis. And every week they go out and have another little battle or a little thing they had to do. And I thought, that's what we want to do. We want to do like a, it's a platoon because that's what it is. It's these five, you know, it's these kids and this dude, it's an alien. Um, and they're a platoon, a small group fighting battles every So that was the kind of the mentality. And we thought we got, we got plenty. We have this, this thing creates plot. As long as I can, you know, look at it and think, what is this character? What horrible shit's going to happen in this next book? Then you've got a story, right? And that was the idea behind animals. So, you know, we'd like scour um, Star Trek and other shit for, for ideas sometimes um, when we started getting desperate toward the end, but um, yeah. And the same thing with gone when i sat down and got how much how big is this and i thought it's either five books or seven books i don't want to do seven books because that felt like les stay against uh rolling like she had done seven books and i i didn't want to look like i was trying to be you know jk rolling so i said six Six seems right probably should have been five but i can do six and get six out of it healthily so you get that feeling about it but sometimes you get an idea it's like this is a neat idea This isn't a series idea this isn't a 500 page idea this is a 75 page idea and so i'm looking for a a way to frame that and use that And one of the things that i love about setting up the website is i don't have to go to a publisher and go it's only 75 pages long you know they're gonna go yeah that's that's not what we do it's not what anybody does so but i like that part of i like the ip creation i like the ideas I like the creating the, the setting more than anything else. The, the world building is my thing. Um, then you know you put characters in it, and then you explore all the angles that you can get out of the out of the premise. Um, that's been my general approach. So I needed to find a way to write things that are not quite that expansive. So that's it's a long, complicated answer. But that's that's kind of what I'm doing now. Doing that, hopefully, and hopefully the TV series. So we'll see
1: yeah we're crossing our fingers for you and we're really yes. excited for this website
2: hopefully it'll be up i keep saying it'll be up in a month Eh-huh. but like so many complicated projects i mean the zoom that i've got to do now appears that it's at one o'clock not eleven thirty. but the zoom i have to do is that's that's what it is uh thankfully i've got um the person actually running the show is tanya martin who some people will remember as the editor for animorphs and the reason that animorphs was great was that tanya gave us zero shit about anything so like we do the david trilogy and going oh god somebody's gonna stop us and like nobody stopped us like, okay then we'll do it and still to this day i love the fact that it's still there's like some guy be 38 years old and come up and go david i go i know sorry <laughs> it's like man you fucked up my head i know we know we know we did sorry no, that's that's it up your head. But no, Tanya's the reason that works. And the other party was uh, I keep getting my daughter's texting me in the middle of all this, of course. I need a quick answer on this. Fuck off. Speaking of her, she's the other big element of it because this is uh, this is Clara who you know you're looking old Animorphs things dedicated to Jake. Jake is now Clara. Uh, she's lost none of her uh, technological capability so uh we talked to these people in canada who are building the website for us and tanya and me, you know we're liberal arts people we don't know anything and they would tell us stuff go, mm, hey sounds good and then we got clara involved and she changed real fast because clara's one of these people she doesn't look at a web page she looks at the code for the web page she goes right up to the thing goes, no no we want to see the code and she reads it all in code so she's that person so you know i'm going to do my this and that and the other thing and how about this and how about that so that was good. So we've got, like I said, we built a machine of useful people. Tanya brings the artists and all that kind of stuff. Clara's got the technological capabilities, and I mostly do nothing uh, except to show up for Zoom calls and nod sagely like I, like I understand what the hell they're talking about. But when we're done, hopefully we'll be able to sell all of the books that we own outright, so the Remnants in Everworld and uh, my two. Uh, and we'll be able to sell all of our old books, you know, bumping you to Amazon or to uh, whatever the indie books thing is. Uh, and then you get a kickback on that, which is nice because you get the royalties plus the little kickback for selling our own book. Um, and it sets, puts us in a position to be able to um, do essentially whatever the fuck we want without reference to whether or not it's something that conventional publishers would want. And I never thought I would do that. Um, I used to think of, you know, self publishing as like, it's not really publishing. Um, and it's become more real. Um, and I was always interested when I heard, frankly, when I started hearing the profits, the uh, the splits on the money. It's like, wait a minute, I get 10% from HarperCollins and I get what from Amazon? 30%. Huh. Interesting. It's like I can build my own site and I can get 80% after expenses. You know, isn't that better? Um, So yeah, I was always interested in, but it was I couldn't think of how to make it work. And then um, and now we got this thing, and we'll hopefully have that up. And it's three sections. The landing page goes from uh, light to dark across the page. Catherine Applegate, K A Applegate, Michael Grant. It's like in all black. Um, So as it gets increasingly dark, we weren't sure where to put you know K Applegate because darkness levels pretty fucking high on. on those three series but um i guess because they were older and because the kids the readership was middle grade i don't know what the thinking was but we'll put those in the middle as some sort of uh, crossover zone be- between um you know otter and uh the one and only ivan and the you know, horrible horrible stuff i write so yeah that'll be up hopefully in a couple months i guess i'll find out at this next meeting oh. so
0: I can't wait though. I'm so excited. Whenever it comes out, I'm ready for it.
2: (laughs) Very cool. I was, I was pleased with that. The only other series that I I may try to buy back is uh, a thing called Magnificent 12, which uh, originally was going to be 12 books. It's four because it wasn't selling that great. And it's me trying to be funny. So it was all um, not jokes, but you know, witty humorous situations, middle grade uh, adventure. And I had a lot of fun writing it, but um, didn't go well enough. Harper Collins is complicated to work with. They're, um, they pay big advances, which you know, we like. Um, they don't really do much follow-up in terms of selling a book. So their attitude, and I've talked to my editor about this, and she just retired, so I can say this publicly. She said two things to me. Well, at one point she said, we don't sell books to boys when I was bitching about the Gone covers. And she said, the truth is we don't really sell books to boys. So I was like, yeah, well, I do. So we're going to have a problem there. Um, and I forgot what the other one was, but there was another issue with her. Um, oh, she said, um, she's not judged. And she's got her own imprint, Catherine Teagan Books. Said, I'm not judged on how much profit I make or even how many books I sell. I'm given a target number of books to do. And I do that number of books. And I said, well, that's a really stupid way to do business. She goes, I know it is a stupid way to do business, but that's how they do it. They buy a lot of books and they kind of throw them out there. You know, like when you're testing spaghetti, you throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Um, so Magnuson 12 didn't really go anywhere, but I had a good time writing and it was funny. So, yeah, there you go. Pitch that next time. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a TV series out of that. So any other questions?
0: I don't think so. I think uh, we got them all. <laughs>
2: sounds good okay kid thank well, you, thank you so, much. <laughs> so much all right good uh, luck
1: with everything
0: yes good luck have a fun trip
1: yeah out. yeah oh, great yeah
2: we're off to Santorini next oh here's a little Ooh. thing I have to pitch we're pitching a major studio I won't mention a name but a big studio I have to pitch them from Santorini and I told AJ they're gonna hate me as soon as they realize what I'm doing oh no and as they realize I'm in my plunge pool outside my room in Santorini, they're gonna they're gonna think, "Fuck this guy!" But okay. <laughs> okay. Power
0: move, total power move. It'll work <laughs> yep. out super well.
2: Yep. <laughs> okay, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Sure.
1: Thank you. Bye.